I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doctor, Dr. Hey, guys. Dr. Dr. Santosh here, coming to you live from the lab. Your neighborhood-friendly infectious disease doctor and research. Well, we can't both be in their neighborhood. That's a very yeah. good neighborhood. <laughs> it's, well, I try to keep my neighborhood accessible and open to all. Well, who are the people in your neighborhood? <laughs> you know, the people that you meet each day? A lot of them are one-celled parasites, so... That's fun. That is rude, but at least they have culture. <laughs> well, actually, they routinely destroy my cell culture, but I guess that's what they're supposed to do. Oh, no. So you're telling me even your parasites are partisan? <laughs> they're like little gentrifiers. Yeah. <laughs> well, you folks know what it means when we can't just get straight to the point. It's time for another alternate <laughs> journal club. You know, Dr. Josh, we used to call these like layovers and stuff, you know, to kind of bridge the whole mystique that we were actually traveling around the world while delivering the podcast. After Thanksgiving, the only thing that's laying over is me. <laughs> hey oh. Part of the reason that we are oh so giddy is a little bit of post-Thanksgiving food coma or tryptophan rush that's a thing probably (laughs) so i figured what with the holidays being such a social time that we would dedicate this journal club to social media type medicine things that involve sharing of information you know can't we all just get along (laughs) it is social media has been used uh in order to diagnose outbreaks in order to diagnose individuals with a disease that they didn't know that they had, like they posted something on Facebook or Reddit. It's also now being used by the actual codified medical community to send out alerts, and perhaps even to yield conundrums in treatment. Some of the things that we're not going to share this episode, but that's fun to look at, using social media to warn each other that, hey, an outbreak is happening. It happened on a college campus. 
And amongst a bunch of kids who came back from a trip to, from Israel, they actually diagnosed themselves over social media. Suffice to say that when it comes to medicine, there sure is a lot going on over here in my space. Ah, dated reference. Knocked that one out of the park. <laughs> and, All the way back from 1997. And as long as we're bidding goodbye to things from 1997, so long, instant oh. messenger. We barely <laughs> Instant Messenger was a good one. I'll always look to Redditors when I look for social media and medicine. Those guys can dig around and find anything. Josh, did you know that actually at one point there was a guy who peed on a on an old pregnancy test that he found? I already said I don't want to hear any more oh. about the Republican <laughs> Party this week, Santosh. <laughs> That was pretty good. <laughs> no, no, no. He peed. He peed on a pregnancy test. This was a guy. No, or the Russia stories. Let's just let's just get yeah. to the science. Well, no, he peed on a pregnancy test, and it came back positive. And he posted it on social media. He said, "Ha ha ha!" And a redditor said, "You know what? You might be actually making chorionic gonadotropin. That's the hormone that sets off the pregnancy test." Um, you should check if you have a hormone-secreting tumor. And lo and behold, he had testicular cancer. So he caught it early because social media. Well, let's move on to one of the biggest stories, I think, that we've seen in the last month. Now, we have talked before about CRISPR, and I'm not talking about the thing in your fridge no. for vegetables, yeah. but instead, how we're all going to make ourselves X-Men in the near future. <laughs> right, Santosh? Uh Yes, right away. <laughs> All right. Um, listening audience, if you can hear my silent thoughts right now, um, Dr. Josh is going to be sadly mistaken. <laughs> Probably we've got no X-Men going on. Are you doing your Professor X thing again? You know they can't see you holding fingers to your head, right? <laughs> Am I actually saying this out loud or thinking it? I can't. Well... U.S. scientists have tried to change a person's DNA by editing their genetic code directly inside their body. This has never been attempted before. We always do it by creating a new protein or piece of DNA in a Petri dish or in a lab bench over in Dr. Santosh's domain and then inserting that altered genetic into somebody. This is the first time that we've attempted doing it you know, right there in yeah. vivo. The problems with this approach are kind of terrifying for most scenarios. You know, you're not going to change every cell in the body. Um, you're hopefully just going to target like one organ or one population of cells. Whereas like if you take stem cells out of somebody and alter them, you can change a whole population of cells. The other issue is targeting while it's in the body. You know, can it get to where it's supposed to go? Well, that's where this is actually a fairly interesting case, because as you mentioned, Santos, usually when you're treating something, you want precision. Dumping a metric <laughs> buttload, which is a real All thing, right. look it up, uh, yeah, dumping a metric buttload of these cells into a body doesn't really seem like the most ideal method of treating. So you might ask, what are they treating? Is it cancer? Well, that wouldn't be good. It would kill all the right. cells in the body. What about you know, an antibiotic. Nope. Well, that's already through all of your blood. So this is to treat a rare genetic condition, Hunter's syndrome. What you should know is basically it's an inherited syndrome and it has a missing gene that stops the body from breaking down complex molecules that then build up leading to permanent and progressive change. So 
a 44-year-old man, Brian Mado from California, Yay. was the first successful test patient. Well, the first test patient ever. Success, whether it was a success right. remains to be seen. He basically had something like 3 billion copies of a corrective gene and a genetic tool for swapping his DNA around just injected into him. And they're going to study him and see what's happened in three months and if this is successful, that could have a major impact on the field of gene therapy. I'm hoping personally for laser <laughs> eyes, but you know, we'll I'll settle for starting to see improvements in things like Alzheimer's or Lou right. Gehrig's disease. Well, it's not just injected willy-nilly like a bunch of DNA. We are piggybacking this zinc finger nuclease. I love saying that. <laughs> Hey, hey, you get your zinc finger <laughs> no, no, away no. from in me. In this case, he totally wants his zinc fingers all up in that, though. <laughs> That's a nilly on that, Willie. So zinc finger nucleases are kind of an older technology, but they work beautifully to edit DNA. And these are kind of like DNA scissors, a lot like Cas9 is. They cut DNA across both strands. Yeah. On paper, that rocks. <laughs> hey, you got rock, paper, and scissors all in one pun. So the zinc finger nuclease can cut both strands of the double-stranded DNA, but in order to get where it needs to go, these things are packaged within viruses. And the virus in this case is made to target liver cells, where if they can deliver the zinc finger nuclease and the substituted DNA that can actually make the missing protein that this particular patient lacks, then he'll start producing the protein because he has the gene that he was missing before. and his symptoms should start to abate. Now, he does have this disease also in every other cell in his body. So this enzyme that he's lacking actually is important in places like his eyes and in his brain. And this particular therapy will not get delivered there. It will not get delivered anywhere <laughs> other than deliver. In fact, when it comes to other organs, we're working with just liver alone. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're stuck right now just working on a single organ. We can't treat every single symptom of Hunter's disease, but we can take care of some of the metabolic consequences of his disease. And we'll cross our fingers. A, the virus has to get there. Uh, the zinc finger nuclease has to work. And the new genetic material has to kind of sit in that gap that the zinc finger nuclease creates and we have to kind of monitor him to see if he starts making the enzyme properly and if a lot of his symptoms start to subside that ought to be a very interesting story to follow in the upcoming months and we will keep Yay. you posted on it moving on to the next well let's see I was looking at my phone because I am a human being who lives in 2017. And are you familiar, Santosh, with QR codes? Uh, yeah, the little square thingies that look like a bunched up barcode. I think you can use it to uh, get cute little extra stuff. Like if you buy a, pack, a box of cereal or something, you can scan a QR code and then you can play a game. You can also scan QR codes to locate dogs if they're lost via tag systems. You can scan certain statues to get histories read to you. QR codes are pretty varied and easily read with your phone. And now that technology is being approved and developed into a blood sugar. For reals? Regulators at the FDA have approved as of, let's see, September 
2017, so pretty recently, the first continuous blood sugar monitor for diabetics that does not require any finger oh. prick tests. How do you get the glucose so, in the first? The first thing you have to realize, Sanchez, the pain of finger sticks and the cost of testing supplies tends to discourage a lot of people from actually checking their blood sugar. And since diabetes really is a disease where proper blood sugar management is vital to your ongoing health, that's something that we really want to emphasize is good compliance. Right. To so the, the more times a day you can check your sugar and get the trend, the better that you can hone your insulin therapy or any of your other therapies in your diet so your blood sugar stays the most stable. Now, most of the 30 million Americans with diabetes today use standard glucose meters or glucometers, and they only show the current sugar level in your blood. It takes an estimate of the glucose running through your blood at the moment you take that finger prick, measures it, and gives you an idea. There are also insulin pumps, which are continuous glucose monitoring devices, and those are used by about 340,000 okay. Americans. But a lot of people won't calibrate the glucometers because why are you going to prick yourself and get bloodied up if you're not even checking your blood sugar? So people never even start by calibrating and therefore even some of those readings could be slightly okay. inaccurate. So Abbott Labs, which is Chicago based. <laughs> I can't, I can't let it go by every stinking time. It's the oldest joke ever. But I have to do it. I, I love Abbott and Costello. For our younger listeners, do yourself a favor and go YouTube who's on first. I know it's yeah, in black and white. It is totally worth it's it. It's worth it. So Abbott has developed a freestyle flash glucose monitoring system that uses a small sensor attached to the upper arm. People wave a reader device over it to see the current blood sugar level and any changes over the last eight hours. So roughly the same idea as QR type technology only with a sensor and a pulse oximeter thrown in nice. along for so the ride. I'm guessing that this little device also likewise has to be calibrated or something at first because it's it's a patch that detects the blood sugar kind of in the interstitial space in the fatty layers under your skin. However, it does not require you to uh, prick yourself or draw any blood gotcha, in order gotcha. to calibrate. Okay, so it'll just read and read and read, and then anytime you want to know what the blood sugar is, you wave the little device over it, and it sends you the current reading. So hopefully that'll make people more compliant. Now, again, this is just being approved, so we, I'm sure we have at least several months, if not a year, until it hits the market. And the first-generation models can't be used with insulin pumps, so the company is apparently planning improvements to enable that yeah. in future well, ones. Well, the nice thing about this, um, other than, you know, you have your glucometer and you have to do a finger stick, you need a fresh lancet every time. You need a fresh strip in order to read the glucose, yada, yada, yada. The wonderful thing about this, if you can just wave a wand and read it, I mean, this information is captured data that can go instantly you know, for instance, if you're using the reader and it's hooked up to your phone or it's already in your phone, then, you know, it can be sent instantly to your doctor's office. It can be added to like a medical record right away. Or, Josh, can you imagine it if, you know, just like you know, people have their, you know, my fitness pal or something and they say like how many calories I burned today or all that. You could post that on social media. You could post your glucose levels 
and be like, yo, look at me. I've got the tightest glucose control. Yo, check out this glucose control. It is tight. <laughs> they could. People could be Instagramming their glucose levels. That would be so awesome. I'm sure there's already a Pinterest board <laughs> out there for it. That's the positive side. There's another one. If we move over into the perhaps a step too far category, <laughs> okay. another thing the FDA managed to approve fairly recently, at least as of November 14th, 2017, thank you, Stat Medicine, is the very first digital drug. No, you don't email it to yourself, but it is a pill embedded with a tiny sensor that will transmit whether or not someone has taken it. I guess we've moved from snitches get stitches to the stitches themselves actually snitch. Yeah, so if you have uh, a little patch... Uh, you've got a, the, the patient actually has to wear a little patch. Um, and then the patch actually talks on the outside to a smartphone application, say through Bluetooth or something like that. Well, well, let's start okay, with yeah. what it's meant to treat. New and improved version of Abilify, which is a mood disorder drug. Uh, now, it's usually used for treating mood disorders like bipolar disorders, sometimes depression and schizophrenia to help with the what we call the positive symptoms such as hearing voices positive not because the voices are telling you anything particularly pleasant but because you are having experiences above and beyond what somebody who does not have the disease <laughs> suffers from. right so we talk about positive and negative symptoms meaning that positive symptoms are input or experiences that are above and beyond what we're actually experiencing. So we say like delusions and hallucinations and unwanted thoughts. Um, the negative symptoms of schizophrenia are what we talk about when there are things removed from our experience that other people would normally experience. So the highs and lows of life, instead, you kind of have a very flat type of mood and a flat type of speech um, rather than having expression. So that would be a, a negative symptom. Unfortunately, we're not very good at treating that one, but we can try and take away some of like the voices in the head and seeing things that aren't really there. So this pill has a embedded electrical sensor inside of it, and it's about the size of a grain of sand. It's activated when it comes into contact with a fluid in the stomach, and then the sensor will detect and record the date and time the pill is ingested. So the little electrical signal it gives off is very brief, and it's very small. So you do need a sensor kind of really close by in order to receive that signal, amplify it, and then send it to something else like an iPad or an iPhone or an Android phone. Then that can go straight to the physician. Now, a huge reason that aripiprazole, or just like Dr. Josh said, the trade name Abilify, why this was one of the medications that was chosen as the platform is that people with uh, mental disorders like this, meaning bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, they don't have very good insight all the time into how they're doing. And so there are times where they may actually enjoy their symptoms, like a bipolar when they're right on the cusp of mania. And so they may choose to actually avoid taking their medication because they don't want to. And in other cases, they might be scared to take their medicine because in a particular state of delusion or hallucination, 
they may get the wrong impression that this medicine is actually harmful to them. So they'll avoid taking it. And so compliance or adherence with the, you know, the regimen of taking the medication is worse off in this population than it would be in someone else who's taking their meds because it actually treats their symptoms and they feel relief immediately when they take their meds. Those of you listening at home may be wondering, and if you are, it's a valid question. Would it be the best idea to make a digital pill that can monitor whether or not you're taking it? For schizophrenics who traditionally may have paranoia and delusions that they are being watched. Not to be insensitive, but call me crazy. A system that will monitor your behavior and send signals out of your body and notify your doctor or the government or somebody. You would think that perhaps a psychiatric medicine may not have been the best place to start. This is a concern that has been raised by others <laughs> in the medical community. Maybe by us right now. <laughs> Thus far, I have not seen anything that addresses this problem. Uh, Abilify itself has even said, or other, other pharmaceutical companies who admittedly would not want the competition, but have also said there's already a monthly injectable shot and other ways to ensure compliance. So the idea of a digital pill, while adorable and very you know, 21st century may still have a way to go before I think we find right. broad acceptance. Um, I think this may have been, uh, you know, a little bit of discussion between drug companies and wanting to test this concept and who would be willing to take this project on and at what cost. Um, because, you know, until we guarantee safety and get the FDA approval and everything, there has to be money that goes into research and development, and it is quite substantial, including finding patients who would be willing to take these medications. So as always, thank you to our willing and very, very consented test subjects. <laughs> but Josh, I think this would, you're right, this would be much better serving in medications for things like hyperlipidemia or high blood pressure or diabetes, where you know, if you fall off taking the medication, you don't really experience the negative consequences right away because, you know, high blood pressure is a very silent killer. Diabetes is a very silent killer. So people kind of neglect taking their medications because they don't feel any worse if they miss their meds. That's really the target for these kind of things. Our next story, you know, maybe we'll get back to it. I'll give you an IOU. For for one no, 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 one I, journal I club know. story, Santosh. Well, I'm not sure that we have the time. <laughs> I I mean, or the... <laughs> could could we maybe like if if we do this one now, then could we use the IOU for a later story down the road? I suppose I got a, that's I got a journal fair. club. Well, it turns out the next story is similarly based. Only instead of trading favors, people are trading <laughs> I kidneys. For a second, you were going to say out, trading faces. I was like, what is? Where is he going with this? Nope. Trading kidneys, and I don't mean on the stock market, although I do like the idea of some 80s executive on a Zach Morris-style cell phone shouting, filter, filter, no, no, no too fast, sodium. time out. But no, so the world's first voucher system for people who donate kidneys has been implemented in order to see if it boosts donations. The concept was invented by a judge in California 
who became the very first one to donate to the scheme in 2014. Howard Broadman wanted to give a kidney to his four-year-old grandson who had a congenital kidney disease that he would likely need a transplant for. You may have realized that a grandfather wanting to give a kidney to a four-year-old, while quite admirable, is not very practically feasible. Most of the time, when somebody needs a new organ, they go on a transplant list, but organs are in pretty short supply. There's something like 90,000 people in the U.S. waiting for a kidney, and one way to get around this is to have a friend or a relative donate a kidney directly to The question is, now it's a matter of not just tissue compatibility or antigen incompatibility, but chronological incompatibility. So in order to get around this, this judge went to UCLA, and he found a surgeon and asked him to give him a voucher, saying, if I donate a kidney now... Will you up my grandson's position in the waiting list at the time that he eventually needs a kidney? So it's basically yeah, putting a kidney on layaway. Told, that's a fair trade. You know, the the child in this case gets to move up on the list. He doesn't bump anybody off or anything like that. He just gets higher priority because a close family member is donating to someone else probably completely unrelated, who could use that kidney. Very often, even when there are people willing to donate kidneys, you can't always accept the kidneys donated, or the person who needs it may not be able to accept it from the person who's offering. And that's because of biological incompatibility. So a lot of long donation chains become created. Rather than giving directly to somebody's incompatible loved one, relatives and friends give kidneys to each other, and each The idea is that each voucher in this plan will help to get one of these kidney chains started because now you're addressing kidneys down the line. If I donate to you now when my grandson needs a kidney in 20, 30, 40 years, he can come in with this voucher and it will move him up the priority list. Maybe he would have been 30th in line or more likely 30,000th and now he can move up to (laughs) 10,000th. I'm not sure how it works, but... No, no, no. A transplant list is a terribly (laughs) dynamic thing. You know, people are moved on and off of it and up and down all the time, depending on the severity of their illness, the availability of kidneys. So it is a, you know, it's something that's kind of constantly in motion. It also, here within the United States, depends on where you are in the country and who's available to, uh, to give the organ to you. Um, kidneys are a little bit easier because we can even get like cadaveric kidneys. We, you know, if, even if you're dead, you can donate a kidney or other organs that really need to be kept alive and be kind of fresh, like livers and hearts. You know, this could be extremely valuable. The surgeon whose name is Veal said, if only a fraction of the 40 million chronic kidney disease patients in the U.S. had a donor like this judge, then something like tens of thousands of organs would enter the system and the waiting list could even start being reduced instead of just shuffled around. So this is another story that's going to have to be followed. And it was first mentioned in the journal Transplantation on at the end of September. And it's been approved by the National Kidney Registry and is offered in about 30 hospitals. So Paying it forward is, you know, really a concept that is taking a hold yeah, of it's, the it's public awesome. consciousness. Um, props to UCLA, uh, who was one of the first to start this. 
organ sharing, <laughs> you know, the legal yeah. non actual sharing, kind, not just stealing. Yes, is not the only social media uh, thing taking place. Santosh, I believe you found a yeah, special kind this story of library. Actually starts with a tragedy, but it ends with just a ton of hope. And the library that we're talking about here is a bacteriophage library. We're big fans of phages here at Travel Medicine Podcast. We've talked about them a couple of times before. So you would say it's not like we're just going through a phage. (laughs) This is not just a phage. This is forever. Yes, this, in fact, it's going viral, Josh. Bacteriophages (laughs) are wonderful little friends of ours. Um, way, way back when there were no multicellular creatures around, bacteria had their own enemies, and these were viruses that attacked them, so-called bacteriophages, because when you put these uh, viruses down on a plate of bacteria, they literally eat through the, the lawn of bacteria that are there because they enter the bacterial cells, they replicate, they replicate, and they burst out of that single bacteria with tons of extra copies of themselves ready to attack all the other bacteria. It goes one phage to one type of bacteria or one species of bacteria. They match up um, and they're rather specific. Capability of these little guys to destroy bacteria have been harnessed many times in the past and now in the present um, when we didn't have any antibiotics around. And even now today when we do have antibiotics but they don't work, you can infuse, believe it or not, just billions of viruses into a human being who is sick with a bacterial illness and those viruses will totally leave you alone but they will go and prey on all those evil bacteria and just break them down for you um and uh, work as a backup immune system they're absolutely fantastic so the story actually began all the way back in november 10th of this year Our story starts with a young lady named uh, Mallory who had cystic fibrosis. She needed a lung transplant because she had been suffering with a bacteria called Burkholderia cetacea. And this bacteria had been living in her lungs for 13 years and slowly became resistant to every single antibiotic that was thrown at it. It was sticking around because in cystic fibrosis, Um, People don't have the ability to cough up the bacteria and get it completely out because the mucus is really, really sticky. And so the bacteria just stay there and build up residence. So every time they threw an antibiotic, boom, a bunch of Burkholderia would go away, but the rest of them would be resistant and they would overgrow again. So here she was, really, really sick, October, November of 2017, and that her doctor said, we really need to get her a lung transplant, but we need to get rid of these bacteria first, or she's going to get the transplant and she'll die. So instead of a new antibiotic, they said, let's go phage therapy. Let's see if we can find a phage to blast out these bacteria. And so they started talking to other physicians and other virologists who had, you know, phages sitting in the back of their minus 80 Celsius freezers. They ran a hashtag on Twitter, and they started circulating the hashtag to try to find uh, a phage that would work. Well, hashtag just, just a phage. <laughs> hashtag phage out. Oh, we're being very, very flippant about this poor girl. They circulated the hashtag, and um, they actually got a hold of someone 
all the way on the other side of the world um, who said, hey, we found the phage you need. It's sitting in some sludge. And I think we can get it, and I think we can grow up the phage and prepare it and send it over to you because you need to multiply a lot of this virus to make it work. But by the time they were able to manufacture the phages, Mallory had passed away from her illness. So the researchers who were all involved in this got together and said, we should not let this happen ever again. We know that we can find the right phage if we have enough people looking for it and if the call goes out. So a lot of these researchers got together and they put together what's called the phage directory. And the phage directory can be found online at phage, P-H-A-G-E dot directory. If you guys know any researchers who would like to join the phage library, there's a big directory. You can search by researcher or you can search by host bacteria. And all of these researchers have gotten like a Twitter handle. So you can tweet at them and say, hey, we've got a patient. They need a specific phage against Pseudomonas or Streptococcus or a Mycobacterium or Klebsiella. And they're all over the planet. They're out in Helsinki and MIT and down in Texas. And yeah, we're going to try to expand this phage library as much as possible so that, you know, Mal a, a, a case like Mallory never happens again. And that brings us to the end of this week's Journal Club. But we were once again very fortunate to get another Just the Tip from our travel correspondent, Sarah. And I'm <laughs> super excited because this one it has does. pirates. It has history and pirates and scandal. But I don't want to give it away. So why don't we go to the clip and see, yo-ho-ho, -ho, <laughs> where are we going next? Hi, this is Sarah, your travel correspondent. And I know I usually call in to tell you about trips I did, but this time I want to talk about something I plan to do. This is the year I'm finally going to make it to Gasparilla. What in the world is Gasparilla? Well, it takes place in Tampa, Florida, a place special and close to my heart, and it is the third largest parade in the United States. This started back in 1904, and it's to honor, Josh, get excited, Jose Gaspar, the legendary Floridian, well, Spanish pirate who pirated the Gulf of Mexico and had his base in southwest Florida. So to honor Jose Gaspar, they do, apparently, I haven't been yet, these parades. There's some for children. There's a children's parade on January 20th. And during the day, the parades are lighthearted for families, and then they progressively get more and more raunchy as the night goes on. I've heard the best place to view this is out in the Tampa Bay. If you can find a friend with a boat, do it that way. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be kind of a, a Mardi Gras of Florida. The main parade takes place this year, January 28th. So mark your calendars. Try to get to Tampa January 28th to witness this big pirate festival. Otherwise, there's plenty to do in the Tampa Bay area. I love, love, love it. Uh, you can go to the aquarium, which is lovely and unique among aquariums because it really looks like you're in a bog in a marsh in Florida. There's the Salvador Dali Museum, which has the largest collection of paintings by this artist in the, well, outside of his hometown in Spain. It's, it's fantastic. This is a great museum. I highly recommend it. I've gone multiple times. There's the Sunken Gardens for us nature lovers out there. Go to Tampa, 
Book your tickets now. You won't regret it. It's still going to be warm in Tampa in January. Enjoy. <laughs> it sounds like root beer pirates. Gasparilla. That's why it ends in deliciousness. So check that out. And I think that pretty much wraps it up. So, guys, we would love to hear your comments, your questions, and your feedback. Word of mouth really helps spread the show, but ratings and reviews help spread it even faster. So please leave those. And if you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find the links to do those along with all the sources from this week in the show notes right underneath in that description. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. (laughs) Happy travels. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.